Hi. So today we are going to review some questions from a past paper, which is the October MRCP Part Two, 2018 past paper. We'll just quickly go through all these questions, and we might not even discuss all the questions. We might just discuss some few topics and concepts so that we can get a quick revision of what they asked in this very important and doable exam. Okay. So we can start. So what they're asking in this question is. there's a patient who has end stage primary liver cancer and he has a lot of right upper quadrant pain and current medication for that pain relief is morphine sulfate 60 mg twice daily uh when you do his routine labs you find out that his uh, renal functions are deranged and obviously his liver functions are also deranged so what they want to know is which of the following is the next most appropriate step for pain relief okay so just remember he's already on a high dose morphine So options like naproxen or paracetamol or tramadol, which is a weaker opioid, they won't do much. So the other options that they've given, which can confuse us, are increase the dose of morphine or you do a celiac plexus block. Okay, so why would you not increase the dose of morphine? Because this patient has severely deranged hepatic functions. and renal functions so you increase the dose of morphine and this patient goes into opioid toxicity because his body is unable to eliminate that morphine so that is not the answer here the answer here is a celiac plexus block okay so next question so there is a 72 year old man who had a porcine mitral valve replacement done 3 years ago for a mitral regurgitation and he was on all kinds of medications including warfarin so now he has come to you uh because just for a review okay so prior to his surgery he's planned for a prostate surgery for his benign prostatic hypertrophy how would you manage his warfarin okay so remember warfarin has a long half life and you need to stop warfarin about 4 to 5 days preferably a week before a major surgery and during that time when you stop morphine you can start a prophylactic uh, dose of uh, either heparin or some low molecular weight heparin and this also this heparin or low molecular weight heparin should be omitted on the day of the surgery because of a risk of a intraop bleed okay so stop warfarin five four to five days prior start on a heparin or a low molecular weight heparin and omit the dose of that heparin on the day of surgery and then post surgery you can restart heparin and warfarin with a target inr of 2 to 3 again okay so next question so this question is about paracetamol overdose and it is a very very commonly asked question so we should discuss this uh, quickly and just remember what they ask and what you should answer okay so there's a young woman who has taken a lot of paracetamol tablets and when she's examined her prothrombin time is 85 seconds and her SGOT and SGPT are elevated and her bilirubin is elevated so what they want to know is which of the following interventions is likely to have the greatest impact on mortality in this case is it giving her lactulose is it giving her vitamin k is it giving her timer caprol or is it giving her nestalcystine so remember the answer here is nestalcystine irrespective of whatever or whenever the patient presents after paracetamol overdose you always always give nestalcystine because it has been shown to have mortality benefit okay aside note to this question and a quick review and because they ask you this 
uh, what are the indications for liver transplant in paracetamol overdose they are an arterial ph of less than 7.3 a uh, prothrombin time of greater than 100 seconds or an inr of greater than uh, 6.5 a uh, creatinine of greater than 300 micromoles per liter or grade 3 4 encephalopathy okay moving on so there is a patient who has daily attacks of angina when he's out walking on a cold day with his dog and he has to use glycerol trinitrate sprays but they are no longer having an effect and he still has ongoing angina every time he exerts so he has basically a stable uh, angina but uh, the gtn sprays are not working other investigations are normal his ecg is normal and there is no evidence of q wave so it is unlikely to be an unstable angina it is still a stable angina but it has become refractory to nitrates so which of the following is the next most appropriate step so basically what you have to do is remember what are the drug cardiac drugs that are anti anginal so the cardiac drugs that are anti anginal are obviously nitrates then beta blockers then calcium channel blockers then also ivabradin but that is not the primary indication and then drugs like uh, renolazine and nicorandil so the answer here is since he is not not having any improvement with nitrites you start him on a beta blocker bisoprolol or uh, metoprolol or carvedilol okay so why is the answer not amlodipin because firstly amlodipin uh is a vasodilator so if they had given an option like uh, diltiazem or verapamil that could still be considered as an answer but still beta blockers is the preferred answer over those calcium channel blockers okay moving on so there's a 23 year old woman who has uh, come because she had a road traffic accident because she could not see a motorcycle on the right hand side so you examine her and you find out she has a bitemporal hemianopia so remember those diagrams where you had the pathway of the optic nerve and then the optic tract then the optic chiasm then the optic radiations you need to review that quickly you can do that on google so a cause of bitemporal hemianopia is definitely a pituitary lesion or a pituitary tumor that's what they most commonly test on the mrcp exam so when you did a mri you find out uh, that she has a 1.1 cm macroadenoma with pressure on the optic chiasm so what they want to know from and her prolactin was elevated so what they want to know is which of the following is a is the most appropriate next step is it starting her on somatostatin analog is it starting her on domperidone is it starting her on carbergolin or is it like transvenoidal rejection of the macroadenoma okay so the answer here is carbergolin Remember, drug of choice for a prolactinoma is carbergolin. Drug of choice for a prolactinoma, if the patient wants to get pregnant, is bromocriptin, and if the uh, symptoms are refractory, and if there is significant uh, intracranial rise in pressure because of the tumor, then the answer is transvenoidal rejection of the adenoma. Whereas in cases of acromegaly when there is a growth hormone producing adenoma the answer or the treatment of choice is not uh, drugs the first treatment of choice is transvenoidal resection and then the second treatment of choice is a somatostatin analog in case of a growth growth hormone producing adenoma in case of prolactinoma it is drugs carbergolin 
if patient wants to get pregnant then bromocriptin and then if it doesn't work then you go for a transphenoidal resection okay so moving on there's a patient who has who is 74 years old and she has okay so there's a patient who is 75 years old and she has a weight loss she has pale stools which are difficult to wash away and she has vague back pain okay so clearly you can tell it is a pancreatic pathology either a chronic pancreatitis or a uh, pancreatic carcinoma most likely a pancreatic carcinoma okay. she has mild tenderness in the epigastrium her alkaline phosphatase is increased which shows that there is an obstructive pathology and her sgot and sgpt are borderline decreased so what what they want to know is which of the following is a specific marker of this underlying carcinoma so obviously this patient with chronic uh, back pain weight loss and pale stools because of uh, pancreatic insufficiency and weight loss has probably pancreatic carcinoma so the answer here is ca199 ca199 is a marker for uh, pancreatic disease specifically pancreatic carcinoma which can be used as initial screening or follow up for treatment response for pancreatic carcinoma so this is one of those questions that you should just know the answer to and the question is basically there's a dentist who was found to have hepatitis C RNA in his blood and what is the most appropriate next step from your side i'll tell you the options and then i'll tell you the answer and just remember what what the answer is so should the patient or the dentist inform his employer should you inform his employer should you inform the dental council should you uh, inform his wife or partner whoever so the answer here is the patient himself has to inform the employer because of that age old concept of doctor patient confidentiality you cannot do anything about it you cannot go over your head and inform other people about his diagnosis okay next question so this is one of those questions and i suggest before going for the exam just read antibiotic treatments for commonly asked infections in the exam okay so there's a 19 year old student who has a rash which is consistent with meningococcemia and he has headache neck stiffness and confusion so he has basically uh, meningococcemia and meningitis so you also see that she's wearing a bracelet which says she has a history of penicillin related anaphylaxis so what do you give her the options are ceftriaxone chloramphenicol ciprofloxacin gentamicin or rifampicin the answer is chloramphenicol okay so why is it not ceftriaxone because there is a risk of cross reaction about 10 to 20% between penicillin allergic patient and cephalosporin allergic patient so the second line option for meningococcemia is chloramphenicol Uh, this is also an easy question and where we can like discuss renal tubular acidosis in short and finish it off so there's a female with rheumatoid arthritis and secondary jogren syndrome and she has come with lethargy muscle weakness and when you do her routine blood investigations you find out that her potassium is low and her bicarbonate is also low so she is in and her creatinine is borderline elevated okay so what they're trying to tell you is this patient who has uh, rheumatoid arthritis and jogren syndrome and who is also on treatment with methotrexate and prednisolone has come with 
lethargy muscle weakness and this is probably because of the low potassium and she also has acidosis which is probably metabolic because her uh, bicarbonate is low now this patient definitely most definitely has a renal tubular acidosis secondary to jogren syndrome okay so which type of renal tubular acidosis is probably renal tubular acidosis type 1 okay so remember renal tubular acidosis type 1 is associated with these uh, autoimmune disorders like SLE and Sjogren's and its features are a normal and iron gap acidosis hypokalemia and a very important feature which they might give you in history is history of urinary calculi so urinary calculi are seen with renal tubular acidosis type 1 and the treatment of renal tubular acidosis is citrate supplementation hydration or you can like alkalize the urine okay so renal tubular acidosis uh, type 2 that is the proximal renal tubular acidosis is like a fanconi syndrome and there is basically malabsorption of all the nutrients in the proximal convoluted tubule it is also associated with hypokalemia but also sometimes hyponatremia and the cause of renal tubular acidosis type 2 is amyloidosis multiple myeloma and all that okay so what differentiates renal tubular acidosis type 4 renal tubular acidosis type 4 is associated with hyperkalemia and that is because the etiology of renal tubular acidosis type 4 is aldosterone insensitivity either due to resistance or due to absence of aldosterone or due to some external drugs that you give like spironolactone and, and that so renal tubular acidosis 1 and 2 have hypokalemia renal tubular acidosis 4 has hyperkalemia renal tubular acidosis type 1 has uh, uh, renal calculi and there's nothing called as renal tubular acidosis type 3 Moving on. So this is again a question that I've seen repeated a couple of times, and it is a very simple anatomical concept. So basically, they're telling you there's a 44-year-old man who has night sweats, lethargy, tiredness, weight loss, and sometimes he has noticed hematuria. So he has just returned from a two-month assignment for work in Pakistan. And when you do his physical examination, you note that he has a left-sided varicocele. his routine labs show that his esr is elevated and there is blood in his urine so which of the following is the most likely diagnosis is it a left sided testicular carcinoma is it renal tuberculosis is it a bladder cancer or is it a left sided renal cancer okay so remember the answer here is left sided renal cancer because uh, you open your old uh, or any surgery textbooks and you see that there is a patient with weight loss hematuria and left sided varicocele you have to suspect a left sided renal carcinoma because this can lead to obstruction of the left renal vein and this is because uh, this is in uh, uh, indirect continuity with the ivc why is it not renal tract tuberculosis well because that would be associated with some fever with some uh, abdominal pain or other foci of tuberculosis in the body and you would have sterile pyuria and all that bladder cancers and bladder cancers usually do not cause varicoceles okay moving on so this is again one of those questions where you need to know the antibiotic treatments for some bacteria okay so basically the question says there's a patient with subacute bacterial endocarditis and the cultures have grown staph aureus which is sensitive to methicillin 
but he is allergic to pen, uh, penicillins again so which of the following is the best uh, antibiotic to give him is it ceftriaxone ampicillin no because he is penicillin allergic is it ciprofloxacin no is it clindamycin no that is uh, anaerobic cover is it gentamicin that is mostly gram negative cover is it vancomycin and rifampicin yes this is the answer so a patient who is penicillin allergic and has methylene sensitive staph aureus you have to give a gram positive cover like vancomycin and you also combine it with the oral rifampicin okay moving on so okay so this question they keep asking you uh, by showing you the ecg and you should know what the ecg looks like and what the diagnosis is because the only question is either you identify the uh, syndrome or you tell us tell them the treatment so this question is about a 19 year old who has a family history of sudden death in his brother and he has come for routine screening and his ecg is done now his ecg is showing that in his chest leads v1 v2 v3 he has a right bundle branch block pattern with st elevations so this is typical of brugada syndrome and brugada syndrome is associated with a family history and it can lead to ventricular tachycardia ventricular fibrillation and death what if they were to ask you uh, what is the treatment here remember treatment for brugada syndrome is placement of an icd it is not giving drugs the treatment for a brugada syndrome is placement of a intra uh, of a cardiovascular defibrillator they ask you this they also ask you wpw which uh, we'll come across later in the episode okay Okay, so moving on. This is another question they keep asking. So the gist of the question is basically there's a patient who is 65 year old and she has come to you with a one week history of fever, right sided chest pain which is sharp and it increases on inspiration and she looks generally unwell. Her vitals are okay and clinically there is decreased breath sounds in the right side and what you found what you found is on x-ray she has a right side pleural effusion you have done a pleural uh, tapping that is a thoracocentesis and then you sent it for labs and you found out that the ph of the fluid is 7.1 so what is the next most important step so what the next most important step is a chest tube drain chest tube drainage because this patient has empyema okay so when is the chest tube drainage indicated in a patient with empyema if the pleural uh, in a patient with basically a lower respiratory tract infection when you suspect an empyema so the answer is if the pleural fluid ph is less than 7.2 if the gram stain of the fluid or the culture is positive or if you aspirate frank pus so remember these three things of ph less than 7.2 a positive gram stain or a culture or frank pus which is aspirated okay um okay this is also another cardiology question and they love to ask you about arrhythmias and their treatment and this is a simple one to understand so we'll just do this so there's a young male who has no prior history of any structural or heart diseases and he had a night of partying and he has come to you in atrial fibrillation so basically a lot of partying and alcohol can induce atrial fibrillation in a patient without any prior history of any heart problems so what they want to know is what of the fo- which of the following is the most appropriate next step is it amiodarone 
is it beta blocker is it cardioverting the patient or is it giving him digoxin or is it giving him flecainide so the answer here is flecainide flecainide is a very effective pharmacological uh, cardioversion drug and it is used safely in patients who do not have structural or ischemic heart disease like this young male you would uh, prefer uh, flecainide in this patient because obviously again he doesn't have any structural heart dis- disorders and flecainide is that pill in pocket approach which you might have heard about which is uh, used for episodes of paroxysmal afib atrial fibrillation the second option if uh, flecainide doesn't work is probably uh, amedron or if the patient has unstable vitals you can uh, do a dc cardioversion okay so this question is about dermatology and this is a pretty simple question so basically there's a young male who has come with macular depigmented lesions on his chest so he says that initially they were like red scaly but after some time they started healing but there after the healing he noticed that there is loss of pigment over the skin so the answer here is pityriasis versicolor and the treatment of choice here is topical clotrimazole is a fungal infection caused by melasesia okay this is one question that is very uh, commonly asked and this is very easy to remember just a few points you need to remember this is about basically managing diabetes in various other comorbidities so there's a 60 year old male with ischemic heart disease and diabetes he's currently taking metformin 1 g twice daily and glycoside 80 mg twice daily and he is currently suffering from shortness of breath on exercise that is dyspnea on exertion and peripheral edema of his limbs probably because of his ischemic heart disease you've noticed that his B- hpa1c is not bad it is 60 mmol per liter but his bmi is high that is a little obese so what is the best uh, intervention here for his glycemic control and basically what they want to know is how what medication will also be uh, has proven efficacy in patients who are diabetic and have ischemic heart disease and also helps in weight loss so there's only really two medication that you need to remember that help that are approved in patients who have uh, uh, diabetes and ischemic heart disease and uh, these are the uh, DPP4 inhibitor class and the SGLT2 inhibitor class not the GLP1 analogs it is the DPP4 inhibitors which are the gliptins and it is the SGLT2 inhibitors which are the flozacins like empagliflozin so the second thing in the question they want to know is which will also help his weight so remember both of these uh, SGLT2 inhibitors and DPP4 inhibitors Uh, can uh, uh, reduce weight but employ the, uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors are the preferred class here because they have a modest impact on weight reduction and they have to they have been proven to have uh, reduced cardiovascular deaths in patients with symptomatic heart failure This is very one very commonly asked question and just know the answer. So what they'll ask in the question is a patient had uh, in uh, a flu or influenza about a week back and now he has come with high grade fever, right side pleuritic chest pain and an X-ray shows some consolidation with cavitation. 
so what is the cause the answer is staph aureus post viral pneumonias are caused by either streptococcus pneumoniae or staphylococcus aureus so if the in the question they mention green sputum with the reactivation of let's say herpes then it is streptococcus pneumoniae if the, in the question they mention uh, cavitation in the x-ray then the answer is staphylococcus aureus that's all that is all that you need to remember about post flu or post influenza pneumonias okay this is a question where sometimes choosing the option can be confusing so we we'll just go through it so basically what they will ask you in the question is the treatment for hyperthyroidism in graves disease so remember there are three treatment options for hyperthyroidism in graves disease first option is first option is antithyroid drugs second option is radio frequency oh radioactive iodine ablation not radio frequency sorry and the third option is a thyroidectomy or a surgery okay so how they'll frame the question is uh, either they want you to tell what is the treatment for a symptomatic hyperthyroidism patient who is pregnant and has graves disease so here the answer is antithyroid drugs like carbimazole and propylthyroxine remember propylthyroxine is safe in first a tri- trimester and then second third trimester you can give carbamazole or methimazole okay so what is the treatment option for graves disease uh, in a patient who has uh, like moderate and severe symptoms and that patient is like let's say not pregnant or on the older side of age then the answer is radio radioactive iodine ablation remember post radioactive iodine ablation the patient will develop hypothyroidism and will require thyroxine replacement okay when is the answer a thyroidectomy for graves disease so that will be done when there is any underlying suspicion of malignancy if there is uh, associated hyperparathyroidism so that you can remove the whole gland and the parathyroid together if there is a very very large goiter if the patient who is pregnant like in this question cannot tolerate antithyroid drugs like carbamazole or if the patient has retrosternal goiter because that can cause airway obstruction so those these are the indication for surgery in graves disease okay so moving on this question is also commonly asked and this is basically about uh, knowing the history and the clinical features of uh, infective process so there's a 29 year old female who is a keen hiker and now she has several areas of depigmentation and she has a facial droop left side facial droop so clearly they're telling us that there is hypopigmented lesions and she's a hiker and she has a facial palsy so i think we all know the answer the answer here is lyme disease treatment of choice for lyme disease in patients who are not in complications like heart blocks or cns limes uh, you can give doxycycline if they have all these complicated uh, lime disease manifestations then the answer is ceftriaxone okay okay moving on so the next question is basically they're asking you how will you manage hypertension in a patient with pheochromocytoma the answer is phenoxybenzamine it is not a beta blocker it is not phentolamine it is phenoxybenzamine because phenoxybenzamine is a non selective alpha blocker and it is the first choice for hypertension management in a patient with pheochromocytoma just remember this okay so the next question is asking about 
clinical features of VIPoma. VIPoma is a pancreatic tumor which causes profuse diarrhea and basically there is a lot of VIP secretion which is vasoactive inhibitory peptide and this leads to hypokalemia, hypochloremia and metabolic acidosis. Just remember this. Okay, so the next question is about a very commonly asked infection. So this is basically parvovirus B19. So the question will either mention a patient with sickle cell disease or a patient who has undergone some uh, bone marrow ablation procedure or a patient who has a disease like hereditary spherocytosis. And then they will mention that the patient developed some non-specific features like a fever or a rash or chorizal syndrome and then they have come to you with extreme tiredness and you find out that his hemoglobin is very low. The white cell count in platelets are normal. So which of the following is the most likely cause? The answer will be a parvovirus B19 because it can cause a pure red cell aplasia in patients who have like sickle cell disease or hereditary spherocytosis because of an increased RBC turnover. So in this question they want to know that in a patient who has been having recurrent UTI since she was a child and now she has come to you with again severe uh, right-sided loin pain and fever and you do a USG scan which shows uh, scarred kidney and marked hydroeletronephrosis. So what is the most important intervention? Remember the most important intervention is relieving that obstruction and uh, treating that hydroelectronephrosis. So the answer here is a nephrostomy tube. You have to start antibiotics, you have to give analgesia, you have to give hydration, but the most important and effective intervention is relieving that uh, block and treating the hydroelectronephrosis with a nephrostomy tube. Okay, so the next question is about uh, methanol poisoning. Okay, so what are the features of methanol poisoning? Basically, methanol poisoning you have to suspect in someone who's an alcoholic or who has like uh, home-based who makes home-based alcohols and then they present to you with features that are suggestive of abdominal pain, dyspnea and then the classical symptom would be a vision problems. So in this case they have given a patient who consumes home potato based alcohol and he has atrial fibrillation, spider nevi that means he has a alcoholic liver disease and he also has pale optic discs and central scotomas so they want to know what is the cause the cause here is chronic methanol poisoning treatment for acute methanol poisoning is foam episol okay so moving on okay so now in this question they want to know how will you replace iron patient who has chronic kidney disease remember oral iron absorption is very poor in a patient who has chronic kidney disease because of gastropathy so the preferred route to replace iron in a patient who has chronic kidney disease is IV that they, they ask this question a lot and you have to replace iron and then only will your uh, EPO treatments work Okay, so next question is about treatment for uh, plantar warts. Okay, so first line treatment for plantar warts is salicylic acid. That is what they want you to answer. Uh, what are the second line options? Second line options are cryotherapy. You can also use topical 5-fluorouracil or you can use uh, formaldehyde topically. But the first line is salicylate. 
okay so the next question is about celiac disease celiac disease is very commonly tested and it is very uh, useful topic to know because there can be so many questions out of this and all of them are simple to answer so what does the biopsy of celiac disease show the biopsy of celiac disease shows villus atrophy with crypt hyperplasia Uh, what are the investigations you sent for celiac disease? The most commonly uh, tested investigations would be anti-tissue transglutaminase antibodies. What are the other associated features of celiac disease? Obviously, the features of celiac disease are abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea. Uh, the associated feature that you need to remember very importantly is dermatitis herpetiformis. So. that is like a very itchy lesion uh, which uh, will present on your buttocks your lower abdomen on your thighs and it will improve with the improvement in the celiac disease that is a low gluten diet celiac disease is associated with other autoimmune disorders like type 1 diabetes hashimoto's thyroiditis adrenal insufficiency and all that okay so moving on Oh, this is a very interesting question, and I'll just read the question, and it'll help you understand some of the neuroanatomy. So, there is a patient who had a whiplash injury after doing a charity bungee jump. Awesome. So now she complains of posterior head and neck pain, and the pain is more on the left side. So now I know that there is something uh, related to either a cervical injury or some artery dissection because of a whiplash injury. So when you examine her, you have a tongue that is deviated to the left, and there is nystagmus. Okay, so tongue deviated to one side that means ipsilateral twelfth nerve gone. Nystagmus can be ipsilateral tenth nerve. So I know that the tenth and twelfth nerve are gone. So the options are which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it a left carotid artery dissection? Is it a right carotid artery dissection? Is it a left vertebral artery dissection? Is it a right vertebral artery dissection? So the answer here is a left-sided vertebral artery dissection because this is like a medial medullary syndrome. Okay, why is it not a right-sided vertebral artery? Because obviously her tongue is deviated to the left. That means her left side uh, is gone. If it was a right-sided vertebral artery, the tongue would be deviated to the right. So the uvula deviates to the opposite side of the lesion, and the tongue deviates to the same side of the lesion. It is not a carotid artery syndrome because carotid artery dissections are associated with anterior neck pains. They will have blindness, uh, that is amaurosis fugax, and they will have features like Horner syndrome and all that. So this is a vertebral artery dissection. Okay, so this is a very simple question. This is about those two syndromes that you need to know. These are humility uremic syndrome and TTP, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. they have a similar kind of pathophysiology and treatment but you need to know them a little bit about each of them so in hemolytic uremic syndrome the history will be of uh, fever diarrhea with abdominal pain and tenderness and the investigations will be of uh, fragmented rbcs because it is hemolysis it's in the name hemolytic and you will see fragmented rbcs and spherocytes on the peripheral smear why is it uremic because you will see some derangement of creatinine and a mildly raised uh, blood urine nitrogen so what is the cause of humility uremic syndrome the cause is there are two important causes that you need to know 
the first one is the E. coli O157H7 variant and the second one is Shigella. Both of them produce Shija toxin or a Shija like toxin which causes hemolytic uremic syndrome. Okay, so what is the treatment of hemolytic uremic syndrome? Uh, it is usually supportive, but uh, the, if the patient is not improving, then you can do plasma exchange. Or you can use monoclonal antibodies to complement C5 like AQVZMR. How does this differ from uh, TTP, that is thrombotic thrombocytic punic purpura? So, the it differs from TTP in terms of an additional clinical feature that you will see in TTP, that is CNS involvement. So, the patient will have either confusion or psychosis or disorientation. Secondly, it differs in terms of pathophysiology. The cause of TTP is ADAM-TS deficiency. There's no need to know what it is and how it works, just remember it is ADAM-TS deficiency. And third, the treatment for TTP, the first line treatment is usually not supportive, it is plasmapheresis. Okay. So this is also a very commonly tested question. So what they'll tell you is there's a patient who is admitted with bacterial endocarditis and cultures have grown something called strep bovis or strep gallolyticus. So what do you need to need to do before the patient is discharged or if you want to further investigate the source of the infection? The answer is colonoscopy because strep gallolyticus or strep bovis is associated with uh, colonic malignancies. So the next question is about uh, management of chronic lymphocytic leukemia do you treat asymptomatic uh, CLL no you don't when do you treat CLL so you treat CLF if the patient has a lot of symptoms like fatigue fever night sweats if you find out that the patient is losing a lot of weight if the patient is having marrow failure that is she is having pancytopenia if the patient develops autoimmune hemolysis that is not responding to steroids and if the patient has like massive lymphadenopathy or lymphocytosis which suggests that the malignancy has probably transformed into a higher grade malignancy. Otherwise you do not treat asymptomatic CLL irrespective of the lymphocyte count. Okay, so next question is about uh, management of uh, tetanus. Okay, so when you suspect tetanus, when would you suspect tetanus? You would suspect tetanus in a patient who has a recent open wound injury uh, and there is an abscess at the injury site and the patient presents with you to, uh, to you with spasms, office tertonus, uh, progressive muscle stiffness, uh, stiffness. So you suspect that the patient probably has tetanus now. So what is the first thing you do? The first thing you have to do is give the patient tetanus immunoglobulin because you need to neutralize that tetanus toxin and you should give it preferably within 12 hours and can be given up to 36 hours. And then the second thing you need to do is start the patient on antibiotics. Now the antibiotic of choice for tetanus is metronidazole. You can also give diazepam for spasm and all those respiratory complications but the first thing you do is you give immunoglobulin second thing you give antibiotics that is metronidazole so next question is what is the treatment of choice for Kaposi sarcoma in a patient with hiv the treatment of choice is the treatment of hiv you give highly active antiretroviral therapy and the patient's Kaposi sarcoma will improve you do not give any additional treatment for that Okay, so that was like a brief review of some of the questions that I thought were worth talking about and some of the things you don't like need to 
go back to the books and mug up about a previous test paper just listen to this it'll it just took 40 minutes of your life to like uh revise 60% of a past paper i hope uh, that this benefits you and best of luck to everyone uh, may you all succeed thank you bye bye